I'm John Brown, Chairman of Beyond Net Zero, and this is Net Zero and Beyond. In this series, we look at how the world can get to Net Zero and the pioneers hoping to make it happen. This is the final episode of the series and is being recorded just a few days before the end of COP26. It's easy to be cynical and downbeat about what the conference has achieved so far. The pledges and commitments have been eye-catching, but many of them have not yet been backed up by plans for delivery. If promises are not converted into action, then we're on track for an almost three degrees of warming by the end of this century. That could be catastrophic. But I'm always an optimist, and the people I've talked to during this podcast series have made me even more optimistic. Addressing climate change means a revolution in the way in which consumers, industry and governments behave. This is a change too complex for any single magic bullet. To help us make sense of everything, I'm joined by James Harding. My name's James Harding. I'm the editor and founder of Tortoise. And for this, I'm going to turn the tables on John. And rather than him being the interviewer, I'm going to ask him a few questions. And John, we started this series, or you started this series, with a reference to a speech that at the time was heretical. The speech that you gave in Stanford in 1997 that essentially put a question to the oil and gas industry about the impact it was having on climate. And I just wondered, before we get to how your thinking has changed since then, I'd love to know a little about how you got to that point in 97, because it wasn't, as things are now, a kind of conventional view. It, it certainly wasn't conventional in 1997 to think about anything to do really with climate change. There were people who'd been talking about it, actually, as we now found out, since the Second World War. Uh, but that was rather academic. What I think was interesting is in the 90s, how it was becoming rather practical. The probability that something was happening as a result of anthropogenic uh, emissions was uh, getting stronger and stronger. So the minimum you could do is to take what was called then precautionary action, do things that you should do anyway to reduce the emission of greenhouse gases. And how do you explain, John, to people who say, given what you said then and the number of years and the evidence that's mounted since, how seemingly little has happened to address... I agree. Very little has happened. I wish we'd all done a lot 25 years ago. The problem would have not gone away, but it would be much easier to solve. And why, John, do you think that has been the case? I don't think people were totally convinced. And they were saying, well, in any event, the probability is not certain, so well, let's wait until it's certain. But goodness me, I mean, if you waited for everything to be certain in business, you'd get nothing done. So, John, we've heard in the last couple of weeks, as cops played out in Glasgow, unbelievable numbers bandied around in terms of finance that's accessible for this green revolution, this green transition. Imagine for a moment that we gave you a trillion dollars and said, put these behind five big innovations, five pieces of engineering or re-engineering of the global system. What would you choose? So I divided into bits. 
I think the first I would probably go to the developing world and ask how I could probably transition them from burning the dirtiest fossil fuels very quickly, shut down some plants, pay for the plants, get people redeployed quickly. That'd take a bit of money, both capital and operating costs, to do the human thing. You can't just move things around and leave people stranded. I think another third is I'd really move forward on carbon capture and storage because we will have to use fossil fuels, notably natural gas, for at least 20 years, and we need to get something done right now. I mean, right now. There are plenty of things we could do in 15 years' time, but 15 years is 15 years. And the third thing I'd do is I I would actually look to see how I could expand the number of choices people are making to make electricity you know, from renewables to nuclear, pump storage, batteries to store more energy. Uh, I do all these sorts of things. And the final thing I do is I'd make big efforts to clean up some very basic things we need in the world, steel and cement building materials. These are very important. And that could knock out 15 to 20% of the greenhouse gases that we produce today. What you haven't suggested in that is a fundamental change in lifestyle or expectations for people. And I think there is a creeping, depending on who you talk to, realisation or fear that there are going to be some trade-offs, there are going to be additional costs. So if you were whispering in the ear of a politician and saying, look, you're going to need to tell people and explain this is coming, what are those trade-offs? Well, first, I think that uh, I was thinking about what to do in a decade. Lifestyle changes take a bit more time. But it's very clear that costs will rise. The question is, how much will they rise in the hands of the consumer? If you take steel, for example, the cost of making green steel, when it's taken back into an automobile, probably increases the cost of the automobile by 1%. Now, everyone says immediately, well, if it's 1% on everything you spend, it's quite a lot of money. But there are some things you can do where the cost isn't very great. The biggest problem, I think, is the cost of raw energy, you know, the heat and light. And that, I think, you know, we have to think carefully about how we subsidize uh, people who can't afford raw energy at the price it's going to be. Otherwise, be very aggressive and will increase what's called energy poverty. And how much do you think, John, that... We are dealing with an urgent problem, no doubt for the planet, but one that has a set of solutions that are inherently unfair. So they are unfair developed economy to developing economies, west to east, rich to poor, in some ways even, you know, old versus young, that we are underestimating the scale at which the changes are going to hit people disproportionately as regards their economic place in the world? I think it is potentially very unfair because there are a lot of people who, you know, are producing carbon uh, outputs who are not getting enough energy and it's very expensive for them. The, The energy poverty is very high. So we have to bring everyone along and we've had, we have to do that regardless of climate change. It's just that limiting greenhouse gases really puts a hard edge on this. And it's not surprising that nations say, well, wait a minute now, Uh, it's all very well for you in Europe to say all these things. Let's talk about us, you know, where our per capita incomes are very low. 
and our state of development's low. So we do have to figure out if we want to solve a global problem, we're going to have to solve it globally, which means that we need to transfer some wealth. John, one of the things that's struck me listening to all of the podcasts so far is that when we first talked about this, there was an idea, if you like, that somehow it was going to be either feats of engineering or pieces of technology or innovations that would be the answer to the problem of climate change. It was intended to be quite constructive. But listening to the podcasts, if anything you come back to what can consumers do, what can politicians and regulators do, what can capital at scale do. And I wondered whether or not when you stand back and having, if you like, had a chance to reflect on all the conversations you've got, you've had, sorry, whether you think, oh, yes, I do now see a prescription or a recipe for how we the people, our governments, capital should be used. I definitely do. This is a major crisis, but I believe there are solutions in hand. And all the people I've spoken to are very practical. They say, yes, there's a problem, but we can do something about it. I think everything we talked about had real solutions, but uh, they needed time, they needed money, and they needed help. And importantly, they needed real demand from the consumer, real demand, whether that's a business consumer or an individual consumer. So I think I'm very optimistic here. So can I ask you about that one thing, which is time? I think one of the irritating things about the whole climate movement, and to an extent I don't know whether I point the finger at COPs or IPCCs or the sort of corporate machine, has been 2050. I'm a person who, as you know, struggles to think what you're going to do the weekend after next. 2050 is impossible to conjure with. What's a meaningful way of thinking about whether or not we are sufficiently changing track and measured against what kind of timetable? So I, I've always believed I've been a longer-term thinker, but for me, 30-year targets don't make it. I think we've got to reduce this to year-by-year targets for the reduction of greenhouse gases. And the question is, against what benchmark? And I think, you know, we have a technique called science-based targets, which segment by segment, industry by industry, set a pathway for the reduction of greenhouse gases that get you to net zero in 2050, but you can measure them annually. And everyone should adopt these because they're independently set and they should measure themselves against that. And incidentally, you can measure what you're doing and very soon... If you don't measure it, someone with a satellite will measure it. So there is nowhere to hide. Can I ask you one final thing? I remember reading years and years ago Gaia by James Lovelock. And I think I'm right in thinking that he, I don't know whether he gave you a telling off or just a talking to, but I just want to know your interactions with with him and the way you think about, if you like, the interaction between climate, planet, people. So the very last time I saw James, I invited him to address 
a rather moustachy dinner uh, of business people. And uh, he gave a very interesting description of, you know, how the world changes, what's important to keep the balance of nature, the balance of activity on the earth. And then one man got up and said, but how do we save the planet? So James said, you don't get it. I've never talked about saving the planet. I've been talking about saving humanity. And he said, you know, the planet will look after itself. It may have a wobble for a million years or so, uh, and it may well wipe out Homo sapiens. But actually, in the end, you need to focus, he said, rather wagging his finger in a James way. You need to focus on humans, because that's what the purpose is here. And I've actually never forgotten it. I remember when I started this, you know, people would come to me and say, you hug trees. I said, no, I don't. Having trees in place are very important, but actually in the end we hug people. We want them to be here. We want them to be part of the future. On the back of the lovely story about a starchy dinner, and I imagine it was starchy in every way, um, a sugary thank you from me. I know you're fairly busy, so taking the time to try and map out for us in a way that I really think you have made a bunch of things that are technical and some of those things that are technological extremely accessible and perhaps most importantly doable, giving us a way of being practical and optimistic, has been brilliant in this series. Thank you for taking the time to do it and thanks for taking the time to talk today. Helping us to go net zero and beyond have been Tortoise Media, its co-founder James Harding and our producer Matt Russell, who's done an extraordinary amount of work in a very short period of time. Thank you to all of them. I'm John Brown, and this has been Net Zero and Beyond. What comes to mind when you think of Amber Heard? A liar? A survivor? A narcissist? The trial of Depp v. Heard was a global phenomenon, but I want to know, was it a fair fight? I'm Alexi Mostris, the host of Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed. In my new podcast, I'm investigating whether Amber Heard was the victim of an organised trolling campaign. Just search for Who Trolled Amber wherever you get your podcasts.